Greetings, Earthlings. Hello and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper. And I'm a fucking rock star. Not really. Okay, maybe just a little bit. Just a smidge. Uh, Yeah, my single came out yesterday. It's called Everybody. It's out on Spotify and iTunes and iHeartRadio and all the other places you can stream music. And the um, clip that I put together is on YouTube. And so far, so good. People have been effusive in their praise. And it's been really humbling and a little bit embarrassing to get gushed on. Sure, I'm being mostly loved on by people who know me personally. I've got to to say that. Um, But people I've come to know through the podcast and through being on Instagram who are not exactly people in my life per se, um, people who have warmed to me through Instagram and the podcast and stuff though, have been very, very kind and um, ebullient in their praise. And um, Shit, it feels nice because I was really in a weird, vulnerable, exposed place with it, particularly the clip, because there's a story in there, there's there's a message in there. It could be viewed as a little bit ham-fisted, I suppose. It's hard to know in the space, in the space of the media and music and everything, as it is now with the overwhelming influence of millennials and, and Zoomers sort of coating everything that everyone says and does in the sphere of the internet and in the social media world and all this sort of stuff. And for someone of my age to come along and do what I've done and to do it without any real thought to spending a lot of time on things like wardrobe and makeup, <laughs> lighting and and any of that stuff. I've, I used a, a few filters and stuff with it, but, but it's very much... Um, me in both flattering and very unflattering lights and it's me singing and it's me telling the world that I'm fucking fed up and I want us to all try a bit harder and, you know, it <laughs> it could be seen as, um, you know, just another white woman fucking doing that white woman saviour thing, but it's me really caring, Okay. <laughs> really fucking caring. Um, and as a member of the LGBTQ commu- community, as a woman, as a feminist, as uh, someone who cares about the planet and all that sort of stuff, and as an artist, that was the culmination of a lot of stuff, all in that one song and all in that one clip. So it was very weighty for me emotionally to make it and put it out there and to have the absolute unmitigated goal to record it publicly and um, enthusiastically try and steer people towards listening to it. Yes, of course, I'm going to pop it on the end of this broadcast, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can have a listen. It is best paired with the video clip, but one shouldn't make music with that in mind, should one. So um, the song came first. I had uh, 
lofty ideas about certain things, but yeah, it just happened organically. Um, and it took me quite a few weeks to put together and yeah, so I'm feeling pretty chuffed. I'm also feeling like this is the start of a newish sort of era, uh, renewed energy for, uh, continuing to create and make statements and be part of the conversation and all that sort of stuff. I was feeling not lost. I wasn't really tired and worn out and run down, but I was kind of feeling like I wanted to naturally progress into different areas, um, make more videos and do more short form uh, recordings of uh, little opinion editorial things um, besides the podcast. And I want to keep doing the podcast, but gee, finding people to talk to and finding the time to talk to people, particularly when they're overseas and you're in Australia, it's a bit of a juggle. And you really have to put a lot of energy into correspondence and following up and and planning. And with me, I like to have uh, my podcasts to be a little bit sequential and uh, have a certain amount of um, connection from one to the other. So this particular episode, while it's strictly speaking not connected to consent, it also kind of is because I want to talk about reality TV and I think the topic of consent and reality TV kind of go hand in glove because there's so much deception and manipulation and coercion that is going on um, behind the scenes in reality TV. And while many uh, participants in these shows, for the most part, respect their contractual obligations to remain quiet about what goes on behind the scenes, the most recent series of Married at First Sight here in Australia has flagrantly um, been a rogue season by anyone's definition. Um, Several contestants have been leaking information from outside the MAFS bubble during uh, filming and during the screening. There was a lot of rumours flying around. Um, These rumours made their way onto the screen, um, which served the producer's purpose to have some sort of drama happening because it really did seem, for all intents and purposes, that... um, all of the drama on the show was really manufactured. Like, okay, I have to out myself here right now. I have watched the last, I think it's three seasons, could be four, I lose track. But the reason why I watch is twofold. In the first instance, i got to say it was just curiosity, journalistic curiosity as well. I was really interested in how low the producers were willing to go and um, whether or not it would motivate me to be vocal about what was wrong with it and try to intervene with the way it was run because the concept freaks me the fuck out. And then there's uh, the not very um, dignified other side of me, a really small part of me that um, is jaded, cynical, um, 
very, very single. <laughs> so there is a very, very small part of me that kind of enjoys the uh, romantic angle of sitting and watching these people um, turn and look at each other for the first time and and to watch them um, interact. It's, it's an interesting sort of thing to witness vicariously, um, particularly as I'm not dating at the moment and I haven't dated for quite a while. So I suppose it's kind of uh, replacing that... Um, chemical uh, kick one gets in one's brain of, of this. So I suppose I'm vicariously sort of being sucked into that side of it. But I've got to say, it's with my eyes wide open. And it's also with a, a, a lot of feeling of being totally appalled <laughs> because I don't like the Cinderella myth. I think the Cinderella myth is fucked up. Um, the idea that they do the show is fucked up. Like I really, really hate everything it stands for because it's this wedding porn and, and wedding dress porn and it keeps sort of reiterating that Cinderella idea of, you know, this day, this wedding day is when you're going to meet uh, this person who's going to save you, who's going to rescue from your dull life of being single. It's, it's such a fucked up narrative by anyone's idea. And the idea that they're going to do it as strangers, in inverted commas, it's, it's, it was never a good premise to begin with. And I think at the beginning, in the earlier seasons, it was almost a bit more legit than it is now. I don't know. All I know is in the last few seasons, it's been all about the... Um, manufactured um, affairs and um, just, I don't know, weird drama. And uh, in the last couple of seasons, um, couples have abruptly broken up seemingly over nothing and people have packed their bags and left. And um, recently, the So Dramatic podcast has been really lifting the lid on a lot of the uh, behind-the-scenes drama and most recently um, interviewed one of the wives and she really revealed all about uh, the duress that the producers put her under to stay longer on the show than she wanted to and to feed a different narrative to her than they were feeding to her on-screen husband. Um, so lucky for both of them, they had the wherewithal to actually communicate some of the bullshit that they were being fed and communicate it to each other <laughs> during the course of the um, show so that they could actually play the game together. Once you're in it, uh, Stockholm Syndrome sort of sets in and... You feel like you don't have uh, the right to act in a natural fashion. You believe that you are to behave in the way that you are told to behave. And, um, yeah, it's it's so many different ways of fucked up. And I'm not going to spend all of this preamble just talking about Married at First Sight. I do want to um, just share this article that I wrote in 2012 about reality TV and how I felt about it then. And I feel like it's an interesting time capsule given everything that's transpired since then. 
Funnily enough, um, Big Brother is about to screen or is has been screening really recently. I don't watch it. Um, so when I wrote it, I was writing it in disgust in 2012 because um, Big Brother had been taken off air a few years previously because of a really disgusting incident that took place. And everybody just stepped in and said, this show is actually really bad for you. It's bad for everyone's health. It's shit television. It's irresponsible. We've got to fuck it off. Someone was actually violated on their watch. They've got to stop doing it. So they did. But when you know, it came back in 2012 and I don't know how long it lasted, but it's back again on a different network this year. And, you know, I'm not impressed. (laughs) So I'm going to just throw to the article that I wrote because it does fit this little rant. And then I'll get back to you the end and uh, we will throw to the song because weirdly enough the song kind of fits the scenario so let's break out the tinkly music as we cut to an iconic scene from the 1976 film Network I don't want your pain I don't want your menopausal decay and death I don't need you Mark you need me you need me badly Because I'm your last contact with human reality. I love you. And that painful, decaying love is the only thing between you and the shrieking nothingness you live the rest of the day. Then don't leave me. It's too late, Diana. There's nothing left in you that I can live with. You're one of Howard's humanoids. If I stay with you, I'll be destroyed. Like Howard Beale was destroyed. Like Lorraine Hobbs was destroyed. Like everything that you and the institution of television touch is destroyed. You're television incarnate, Diana. Indifferent to suffering. Insensitive to joy. All of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality. War, murder, death. All the same to you as bottles of beer. And the daily business of life is a corrupt comedy. You even shatter the sensations of time and space into split seconds and instant replays. Your madness, Diana. Virulent madness. And everything you touch dies with you. But not me. Not as long as I can feel pleasure and pain. Here are a few scenes from next week's show. So, Big Brother is back on in Australia. Again. 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 
Seriously, I don't get it. Mind you, I do speak from the lofty authority of someone who has never watched it. Not even a little bit. Coincidentally, I've never tried to sneak a peek into my neighbor's bathroom window while they were taking a shower either. Call me old-fashioned, but I don't really find fly-on-the-wall stuff that entertaining. Unless it's fictionalized fly-on-the-wall stuff like Arrested Development, Parks and Rec, The Office, Frontline, Kath and Kim. Those were top of the pops 10 years ago. <laughs> Give me an artistic representation of reality over Fishbowl TV any day. And to be perfectly honest, perhaps deep down I'm not moved by it because I'm more of your hands-on hedonist, or I was... I live such a quiet life these days. It's quite monastic. But in my heyday, which was not that long ago, I preferred to experience the highs and lows of life for myself rather than live them vicariously through someone else. Unless it was really good drama. I think the empathy factor makes it too hard to watch people do this stuff for the exploitation value than... It does to see really well-written, well-acted drama, then I can let my defences down and really, really enjoy something spiritually satisfying um, and whatever, erotic, whatever. You know what I mean. I think the reason that these shows are so popular is they do distract us from our own problems because they give us real-life people to identify with, kind of, all while selling us toothpaste and beauty and youth and cosmetic surgery and in the case of maths, wedding venues, wedding dresses, wedding feasts, nails, eyelashes, eyebrows, all the stuff. And don't forget the sex, which they are really pressured into doing. Oh, and the self-absorption, the narcissism, the gaslighting, all the really shitty psychological stuff that is now not incidental so much as played up, manufactured, orchestrated by the producers. But I suppose if I can sit and reflect about it and then write about it or podcast about it as an abject lesson in what not to do with your spare time, (laughs) I suppose that's what I can get out of it. Because you know what? I've lived in share houses. I've been drunk at parties. I've made a complete twat of myself, had arguments, as well as taken showers, brushed my teeth. I don't need to watch other people do that. What's the point? There's no vicarious desire there on my side. (laughs) I'm not looking at things that I haven't done or aspired to do even in my worst nightmare a lot of the time. And you know what? If I have to watch someone take a leak on television, I'd rather it be Tony Collett, Kate Winslet, Claire Danes. In recent times, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Asher Keddy. Because they have done it a lot in character lately. There's a lot of women peeing scenes these days. Have you noticed? Not just for pregnancy test scenes either. It's pretty much replaced the previously ubiquitous taking a shower or bath or brushing your teeth trope. So now, if we want to know if women are troubled and thinking, they're doing it on the loo. I suppose that way they can flush a bit of upper thigh, 
touch their genitals because they're wiping them. I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting, weird phenomenon. And, 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 and I mean, if you're on the loo long enough to sit there and think, aren't most of us looking at our fucking phones anyway? Anyway, I only single those actresses out because those are the ones I particularly have seen pee on screen. The pee queens. Uh, what? Uh, it wasn't a toilet scene so much, but I had particular admiration for Kate Winslet in Holy Smoke. That was kind of like a emotional breakdown wee-wee that she did. I don't know if it was a real one or they used a hose. I really don't know. Anyway, but I digress. <laughs> one of my biggest gripes about reality TV is that skilled actors, directors, writers are actually losing work and they're losing incentive as a result of all this just add water, formulaic entertainment, and by water I mean showers, baths, alcohol. It's televisual fluff that doesn't really cost much because the advertisers are falling all over themselves to supply things to make them possible. And I really resent television executives and producers for putting this bottom line in front of uh, the artistic community in uh, Australia and other countries, Um, but also in front of people's sanity. There's this persistent niggling feeling in my heart, and it has been ever since I first saw the first reality show, whenever it was, that this artificially flavoured truth, in inverted commas, is rotting our spiritual teeth. In inverted commas, I'm aware I'm mixing bad metaphors there, but fuck, it's my podcast and I'll be weird if I want to. I'm appalled by the sheer exploitation of the participants and the audience. Let's get one thing perfectly straight. There is nothing real about reality TV. As soon as you appoint a director and turn on a camera and turn it towards a bunch of carefully selected people, place them in lab rat conditions, and then constantly manipulate the environment in order to provoke extreme behavior, shit stops being real. End of story. Oh, and don't get me started on dramality, dramality, whatever. TV shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, sadly. Sadly, people do watch this stuff, thinking that it's spontaneous and genuine, in spite of the really careful staging, multiple camera angles, strategically placed mics, stakes-heightening voiceovers, foreboding dramatic music, and crafty at times very fucking sloppy editing. There's such a profound difference between watching something that truly resonates via well-produced, insightful TV drama or comedy and watching the day-to-day existences of ordinary people in the vain hope that they will do something interesting, read embarrassing or salacious for our entertainment. Why did reality TV become the nation's staple? I actually have a fair idea. The year of writing this was 2012. It's now 2021. I celebrate 29 years as a published journalist this year. Because I don't hold a recognised degree, I never felt journo, reflected who I was. I've always just called myself a writer or a humorist even, but I'm not a journalist because I never felt legit without a degree. 
which, let's face it, was rather naive of me given the unsavoury reputation the profession has garnered over the years. I'm old enough to remember when Frank Sinatra labelled Australian journalists two-bit hookers during his 1974 visit to this country. For most of my career, I've dribbled on about my pet topics. (laughs) Guess what they were? Um, In my own style. Somehow I got away with it. But there was a brief period in the mid-1990s when I became a gun for hire, writing features for a reality-based magazine, a tabloid. They were relatively new back then. At the time, I was really too grateful for any kind of work. It was so early in my career to realise that I was selling out. I also had two small children, so I didn't feel like I had much of a choice even if I did look at it through an existential higher self lens. I didn't really possess that. I was too busy just wanting to put food on the table and satisfy my ego. Of the skeletons remaining in my closet, and there are a lot, this one causes the most angst. The magazine to which I refer no longer exists. It was at the vanguard of the UK tabloid magazine Invasion, which kick-started the all-possessive puerility evident on our newsstands today. So this is how it worked. Every week we attended production meetings where the editor presented a bunch of story angles she wanted us to pursue. Yeah! The angles preceded the stories. We were given the task of finding people who had stories to fit these briefs. I know, you would think the stories would come first and the angle would come later. And sometimes that was the case, but not often. And I had to learn how to massage real life to make it fit or flat out ask friends and acquaintances to make shit up for me and participate in these stories. I'm not even kidding. Every story had to be written by the writers in first person on behalf of the subject and had to have loads of quotes. If there weren't enough quotes, the editor would ask, do you think it would be okay if we said that she said, insert serviceable quote here, here? I'd then have to make a judgment call as to whether or not the editor's suggestion could pass as an actual quote from the person I interviewed in good faith that they could trust me. That's it. As I read these words, (laughs) after I can remember how it felt. Fuck. It never left me. So, yeah, for about 18 months, I became a two-bit hawker working for a couple of different magazines, one of which doesn't exist anymore. It was called For Me. The other one was Good Taste. <laughs> Ironic fucking title, that one. Interestingly, For Me also offered cash incentives for people to send in their real-life stories. They, had, they said, give us 300 words or less on something that happened to you and we'll pay you money if we decide to use your story. If your tragedy is interesting enough, these heart-rending handwritten accounts of rape and abuse comprised many of these reader contributions, most of which were discarded. I defied the urge to contact them all in person and ask how they were going. They needed a friend. 
if they were still in a difficult situation. And I still wonder what became of those people. I'd love to say that personal ethics caused me to quit my job, but the magazine called it a day before I had the chance. And also, at that time, I was pregnant with my youngest son, so I had to give it up for a while anyway. One upside of that story is one of my former colleagues and I have remained the best of friends to this day. We're like sisters, so I'm eternally grateful for that roll around in the gutter. (laughs) Magazines and newspapers have changed a lot in 30 years. I said that in 2012, so I guess they've changed a lot in 40 years. I don't read newspapers anymore which was novel then, it's not now. Nobody reads newspapers anymore (laughs) that is under 50. Um, I haven't for a few years. Whenever I see one now, I still get shocked at how tabloidy we've become. So much celebrity crap. It looks like a woman's gossip rag. The Daily Telegraph, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, if, if not for royal gossip and celebrity gossip, what would any of those magazines and newspapers do with their lives. Uh, Women's gossip rags have all morphed into the National Enquirer, which used to be an absolute joke. Um, You know, Richard Nixon was the father of my two-headed love child and, you know, shit like that. (laughs) Uh, That's what I made up on the fly. That's a bit disturbing, isn't it? Celebrities and their divorces, dalliances and diets dominate the front page. The stuff that really matters is lucky to get a look in on page 10. Paparazzi's camera lenses have grown bigger as editors' consciousnesses have become smaller. This is me in 2012 saying, social media perpetuates this to a certain extent. God, hasn't it gone fucking viral since then? And I mean, in a toxic way. The popular hashtag first world problems provides a small glimmer of hope, I thought back then. Self-awareness is a beautiful thing. In some ways, the public is better informed by Twitter than by the news. Wow. This is a little time capsule, isn't it? Mm. Cyberspace is strewn with courageous, smart and creative people. Um, That seems to be less the case. So there's so many more egomaniacs and narcissists on the grift now. But, you know, uh, in the show notes, I'm going to put some really reliable, wonderful podcast uh, creators and YouTube creators because I love to share the love. Oh, my God, where was I? I've gone so far off book. Which brings me back to TV. Documentaries would appear to be the last bastion of honesty on TV. I'm generalising, of course, but it seems to me that the documentarians of this world still give a shit about being truthful as well as entertaining. One of my favourites, whom we haven't really heard a lot of lately, is John Saffron. This was definitely my fangirl love letter to John Saffron, this article. His series, John Saffron's Race Relations, took gonzo journalism to truly great heights. Seems to me if you're going to blatantly exploit people's... I found this on the web for his John Saffron's Race Relations took gonzo journalism to truly great heights. Check it out. Ah! Siri just... Siri just fucking went rogue. Shut up, Siri. I didn't ask you. Oh, 
oh, she doesn't want to talk to me now. Fine. <laughs> oh, my God, Siri, you are cancelled. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That happened live while I was recording. He took gonzo journalism to truly great heights. It seems to me if you're going to blatantly exploit people's misadventures for fun and profit, it's far more ethical to exploit your own. Witnessing abject humiliation, profound joy, emotional vulnerability and masturbation on TV is far more entertaining when its aim is to raise pertinent social issues and to revel in the mud of our humanity in a connected way rather than a cannibalistic one. Naturally, John gets bonus points for being hysterically funny. Oh, look, I really did wank a lyrical. Mr. Saffron, I said, you are my hero. I'm not worthy. I still do think that. By the way, if I ever find out you didn't actually come while the cameras were rolling, I'll be completely shattered. I need to explain that. Shit. So, because uh, I didn't in the article, I forgot. I just dug it out this morning. Didn't pre-read it before I started recording. Oh, my God. It's hard to explain the masturbation scene, except it was a sperm lab uh, thing that he was documenting, and he and his cameraman were in a booth, and he was uh, masturbating to give sperm. You had to be there. You had to watch the thing. I'm sure it's on the web somewhere. Look it up. It's really, really fantastic journalism, I've got to say. He went there. Who goes there? He did. So at the top, I quoted Network. Little did I know that um, one day when I wrote this, because I just quoted the paragraph at the beginning of the article, that I would actually be able to grab a soundbite and put it on a podcast and then read it out. It's so much more resonating to hear the brilliant acting of William Holden and Faye Dunaway during that iconic scene I didn't actually quote the whole thing. I started it at You Are Television Incarnate, Diana. But the whole scene is amazing. 1976, 35 fucking years ago, it foretold so much. I'm going to close this with the end of the movie. So, yeah. Anyway, the film setting is the production offices of a network news program. Australia's Peter Finch played Howard Beale, a network news anchorman whose popularity was on the slide. When he's given two weeks' notice, he thinks his life is over, so he announces on air that he will commit suicide during his last telecast. Consequently, his show's ratings go through the roof and the people behind the scenes go into overdrive, trying to capitalise on the ratings boon. Bill goes from depressed pariah to deluded messiah overnight, and the aforementioned Diana is a hotshot producer. She lives, breathes, and fucks television. There's a hilarious scene where she's pitching a new concept to William Holden while she's climbing into bed with him, and just as she gets the part of the story where she envisions the success of it, she mounts him and climaxes on the very first thrust. Her orgasm was derived purely from her zealous speech rather than dick the cold, calculating, downright evil manner in which the TV executives ride on the back of Beale's breakdown and then callously plot his demise when his ratings plummet again struck me as almost too true to be really funny. But I laughed anyway. Fear can have that effect. 
In 76, this film would have seemed an extreme apocalyptic view of TV, but its relevance today is gobsmacking. For years now, I've found news team TV promos to be quite disturbing. Invariably, they feature repetitive grabs of tragic footage and heart-wrenching sound bites, all set to music. We're the first to bring you the bad news in the best possible way via good-looking journalists who walk purposely through dangerous-looking streets in order to look more earnest because we care about the news so much so that we'll do a bunch of live crosses or at least pretend to do live crosses so you'll feel like you're not really there right along with us. Film at 11. Remember the news promos immediately following September 11, 2001? They were a prime example of what has since become news porn. Those endless overproduced ads made the vision of planes striking the towers and the subsequent implosion look like some kind of macabre ballet. It was really fucking anxiety-triggering. It made me sick. Had me curled up in the fetal position watching that fucking tragedy over and over and over again. People jumping out the fucking windows. What is wrong with you? News fucking producers. It was played at all times of the day. No warning. No warning. They've, they don't do warnings so much. Not anymore. They pretend to, but they don't. Oh, this really gets me. It really does. Tabloid news, reality television, public affairs, TV have become so mercenary. There should be a viewer warning issued ahead of every paragraph. Or at least every episode. Every episode. Just just do it as a blanket thing. Don't reserve it for specific episodes. Just do it for every episode. The program you're about to see is rated T for trite. It contains distorted facts, technical additives, and the glorification of tragedy, superficiality, negative body image, and self-absorption. It's recommended for apathetic audiences with extremely low entertainment thresholds. Big Brother attracted a lot of negative publicity during one of its seasons, so much so it was taken off air. It was known as the turkey slap incident. Google Google it. Content note, it is what you think it is. Commentators came out of the woodwork to indignantly tut-tut about how exploitative the show was while broadcasting the incident over and over and over. Please, sir, can it be over now? When that show was canned, we're talking about over a decade ago, I took it foolishly as a positive sign. But it came back once on a different network, and now it's back again on another network. I feel like I'm stuck in traffic. There's been an accident ahead, and all the cars in front of me have slowed down to ogle the injured, metaphorically speaking. Do I sound a tad self-righteous? Probably. But if I've given anyone pause to contemplate the insatiable machine that sucks the lifeblood from our arts industry and undermines the collective consciousness and that causes them to switch off, then I don't care. Big Brother is not good television. Maths is not good television. Fucking MasterChef is not good television. The Voice is not good television. Anything that has people crying because in order to root for any of the contestants, you've got to watch something awful that they've been through that brought them there. 
up the drama while someone makes a souffle or sings a song? What even is art anymore? What even is creativity anymore? It's a lie. That's what it is. I'll give the last word to Howard Beale. Q Howard. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radials and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out? You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. I'm not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell, and say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. It's a shame that that sort of cuts off rather abruptly. So what was happening was, you can hear other voices, there is uh, the producers, played by Faye Dunaway and William Holden, are watching him lose his shit on air and it's going out live and they are getting calls from the uh, network um, headquarters in other states to let them know that everybody's watching the show. So it's an absolute ratings bonanza and they're watching it going, yay, this is great. They're watching this man melt down and thinking, yay, this is great. But the ironic and very cool part of it is they also pause to look out the fucking window and see that there are actually human beings sticking their head out in the rain, yelling at the top of their lungs, I'm mad as hell and I don't want to take it anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. And... Don't we all feel like that occasionally, <laughs> especially when we're watching reality TV? Um, yeah, I think you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. Network, 1976, brilliant, amazing, prescient film. Yeah, watch it. And it just felt like the right time to dig this particular story out of the vault and um, I have been following 
the drama around Married at First Sight this time around because it seems to be even more troubling than usual and the participants seem to be suffering more than usual and it's been revealed via um, the Instagram and Twitter of um, So Dramatic podcast and these interviews have been popping up and we're being told firsthand that these people are being manipulated unconscionably. Like, this is out of control. What is going on on these reality TV shows is out of control. Um, Like, I have known people in my life that were singers that were approached by The Voice or Australia's Got Talent or whatever. So the whole headhunting thing hadn't really occurred to me until I started noticing rather belatedly that the Married at First Sight contestants were all kind of cookie-cutter, insta-model-type people who were clearly wanting to be influencers. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's that's not right. How can everybody relate to people who are going onto a TV show to get married if they're all this particular kind of person and then you realize that the the better looking the uh the person uh the bigger the drama attached to that person and the more they're seemingly manipulated into placing themselves in a position where they're going to be seen as the villain or the hero of the piece and it's it's you can see the strings (laughs) it's like watching a 60s b-grade sci-fi Film, you can see the fucking fishing wire floating the flying saucer in front of your eyes. You can see that when people are gazing out the window and the voiceover is being played, um, that it's just this orchestrated bit to fill in the fact that they really didn't have anything much to show that was real. So they're actually telling you the story that goes along with this person's particular arc to listen to these contestants talk on a podcast and talk about their arc. Fucking blows my mind. It's supposed to be real. Like, I know that it's not real. I've always known that it's not real. But for the participants to be so well-versed in how it works to the point where they are talking about their story arc and whether they are going to be portrayed as a villain or a hero, whether they're going to get a favourable edit, this is out of control. This is just too weird. And there are a lot of full-grown adults that are very aware that it's a manipulation and that it's edited and it's all bullshit. But there's also a lot of full-grown adults that are believing it. You go to any of these... uh, chat sites that have people discussing it and they are being really virulent and um, leaving a lot of hate in the comments. They are taking out a lot of animosity towards these people like they are believing so much of what is going on before their eyes and they're probably sitting and watching it with their children and that's, that's where I really fucking can't deal with it anymore so um this is my way of uh saying i know how it works i know how it works from the point of view of uh print journalism 
Um, so that prepared me to be cynical watching reality TV, but to watch it decline further and further and further into the horror show that is now and to watch people be traumatised in front of my very eyes, it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not great, is it, guys? It's not great. Do we really want this? Do we really want this in our lives? Do we? That's the question I'm asking you. Get mad as hell and turn your TV off. That's what I reckon. I don't think I can watch maths anymore. Like I said, I was really watching it as a social experiment of my own, sitting and watching civilization decline as I know it and um, monitoring that in case I would find myself doing exactly what I'm doing now. And that's railing against it, rattling the pickets, asking people, stop watching, begging the producers, stop doing what you're doing. Okay, so let's leave it on a fuzzy, a warm and fuzzy ending. Um, I wrote a song and I made a film clip and I'm hoping that you will like to check it out on YouTube and if you like the sound of it, I'm about to play for play it for you now. If you really like the sound of it, pop onto Spotify or iTunes. You can even purchase it if you like. Like I have not got a job <laughs> at the moment. I throw my heart and soul into um, being an artivist, being a podcaster and social media commentator and rat bag and musician. I'm going to put out an EP. I have to get back into music. So what I've decided is I am going to put the podcast on hold. And by on hold, I mean I'm not going to put one out in two weeks. I'm going to instead wait four weeks to put the next one out. And in the meantime, I want to plan it, line up some interviews, um, line up some topics to sit down and actually write. Um, uh, 2020 and Orgasmic Oddity was a completely written series. I put a lot of energy into it. So I want to put more energy into the podcast episodes. So I'm going to space them out a bit more. I want to line up some interviews. I want to get more into the mental health side of things. I want to talk more about the emotional side of things. I want to talk about what is love, how do we develop our self-esteem, and what happens when things go wrong, um, given that as we spoke in the previous podcast, the trauma-affected brain causes us to have weird reactions in relationships and um, traumatize ourselves again and again. What we all want is love. That's all we want is love. And if we were deprived of it as children or if we have some sort of tragedy happen as children, trying to work out what love really is and working out, you know, how to love ourselves. Ah, oh, it's a fucking minefield. And um, then you juxtapose all of that with the world we're living in now. And um, then you have this song. Um, don't forget to like and share 
the podcast, like and share, YouTube, like and share on Instagram, drop me a DM with some feedback. Um, I will talk to you soon. Love you all. Give yourselves a big hug. Thank you.